Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. This week's episode is about an Australian biographer who took on the world in every sense. Hazel Rowley was a brilliant biographer at the peak of her career when she died suddenly in New York at the age of 59 in 2011. By that time, she'd cemented her reputation for her meticulous and very engaging biographies of Christina Stead, American black writer Richard Wright, and power couples de Beauvoir and Sartre in Tete a Tete, and Eleanor and Franklin D. Roosevelt in Franklin and Eleanor, An Extraordinary Marriage. I remember hearing the news of her death with tremendous shock. I'd met Hazel a couple of times and always found her agile in her curiosity, but steely in her determination. This year, her sister Della Rowley, together with her partner Lynn Buchanan, has published Life as Art, an anthology of writing by Hazel that illustrates her approach to biography, her dogged pursuit of sources, her boundless sense of adventure in following leads, her self-doubt and sharp observations of character and place. We're going to start with personal recollections of Hazel from Della. Stella, what do you remember about Hazel as a child and a teenager and as a young adult? Well, she was my big sister. And so she, I always lived in her shadow. Uh, But she was incredibly imaginative and very passionate about her, the things she liked in, in life. And she liked to be different. She didn't like to conform to everybody else. She liked the fact she had an English accent in Australia her imagination was the main thing that stands out. She used to take the neighbouring children to fairyland. We used to wheel them around in a wheelbarrow and she'd give them get small pills and they just loved it. They loved it. And she began writing when she was eight and she never stopped. She used to write me a weekly um, comic strip with complete with pictures and ongoing adventures of Susan Bryan and the Jeep. And I loved it. I loved it. So she was somebody I looked up to. It's a, it's a strange thing that she actually ended up writing biographies because I would have thought she would have liked to have written novels. Um, she tried, in fact, and she sent a few off for publishing, but they got rejection slips. Uh, but... You know, she she liked to make up stories. What was the first sign then of her interest in biography? Was she interested in um, the lives of adults around her? Did she ask a lot of questions? Was she curious as a child? Yes, I'd I'd say she was. And she got from our father um, a love of being able to tell stories, to tell stories. We used to sit around the dining room table and tell each other what had happened during our days. And it really honed our skills as storytellers because, as Hazel says later, well, in Life as Art, um, when you read her passages, she said, I learnt to hone down the details. Don't give too many details, leave people hungry for the story. And that is the talent of a good storyteller. Hazel then became curious about people's lives in that way. What, what was behind the facade in people's lives? She was about 19 when she managed to interview Simone de Beauvoir. And um, she just loved that aspect of writing. She, she liked the interviews. She liked um, meeting people. She liked the research. She was very interested in history. 
that was one of one of the things that upset her about Australia. We didn't have enough of it, and um, and I think it all fell into place while she was at Deakin University when she was teaching at Deakin University because when she was an academic, it was expected that you wrote you wrote articles or you wrote academic pieces. But she decided she was going to write a book, a biography, and uh, that's when it fell into place. And was it at Deakin that she became a feminist? No, no, that was much earlier in, in her Adelaide days, in the 60s, end, end of the 60s, um, when feminism surged forth during the Vietnam War, demonstration days and so on. So she wasn't radicalised by the act of reading Simone de Beauvoir. That's not where her liberation came from. Well, she certainly always had Simone de Beauvoir as her heroine. Um, she just loved the idea of Simone and Sartre and this this honest pact of honesty. And I think always in her relationships, she looked for a Sartre, someone who was intellectually compatible with her, who could push her along, you know, say, dare to do this, dare to do that. Unfortunately, she never found a Sartre in her life. But uh, despite interviewing Simone de Beauvoir and despite that being not quite as she'd hoped, she never lost her, what is the word, her admiration for Simone de Beauvoir. Sometimes your idol is just not... Um, quite the way you hope mm. they would be on the day. They may be having an off day. Mm -hmm. They may be a bit over being interviewed. And that was the case, wasn't it? So there was something rather crushing about that encounter for Hazel was that she had such high expectations that this was going to be such an elevated and lofty encounter. And it wasn't. That's true. That's exactly right. She, obviously, when she was at that young age, she would have prepared the questions that she wanted to ask Simone de Beauvoir and done a lot of preparatory work. But then she went there and Simone de Beauvoir just was answered her questions as of rote, in a rote way. And Hazel just felt that she just continued to build up this myth about herself as this successful woman. And Hazel was hoping for the underneath of it all. You know, what was actually, what was it actually like? You know, it wasn't it upsetting to see Sartre go off with your friends, um, but she didn't get any of that. But she still knew that there was a story underneath and she'd get to it eventually. And 20 years later, she came back to it. Was Hazel frustrated by the cultural and intellectual climate in Australia? Uh, to some extent, she was. I mean, even today, you, you, you ask 10 people down at the shops if they've ever heard of Christina Steadon, they'd say no. Um, so, and, you know, Hazel said, it's our best female writer, you know. She wanted to go to places where she'd be further challenged. Hazel felt like she was a big fish in a small sea in Australia and she certainly jumped in the other extreme. She became a very small fish in a big sea. <laughs> What was she looking for in America? Was it a bigger readership? Was it better publishing deals? Was it American subjects? It was a combination. Um, certainly in Australia, you can't, if you're going to be a full-time writer, it's going to, you're, you're going to be poor. You just can't, you cannot do it. You know, Hazel's first advance for um, Christina Stead was, and she was lucky because two publishers vied for it, 
was $20,000. And that if you're going to live on that for five years, you're going to be on poverty straits. So after she finished Christina Stead and she won the uh, Banjo Award for nonfiction for that book, so on the back of that, she wanted to, she then chose to, to, to write about Richard Wright. And her next advance in America was, oh, what was it about? Um, 150,000. Okay. So that was more or less, you could more or less live on that for a few years anyway, for the length of time that you're writing the book. Um, and then Tete a Tete was translated into 14 different languages. And so you get translation rights as well for that. So that was an even bigger advance. And Franklin, she went on and on. Franklin and Eleanor was an even bigger advance. Can you remember what it was? Yes. Can you <laughs> <I> tell can. <laughs> me? <laughs> uh, okay, so for Simon de Beauvoir, um, it was um, 250000 And for Franklin and Eleanor, it was 450000 Wow. Mm. That is serious money. Well, but you're living... She chose to live in New York, which is a very expensive place to live. <laughs> Just thinking about Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt, here we have another power couple. And I'm, again, wondering whether there wasn't a tendency perhaps in Hazel to idealise certain types of couple that she maybe imagined it would be wonderful to be part of herself. Do you think that she romanticised Eleanor and FDR? Oh, I think she did. I think you're spot on there, actually. So I guess that the thing that was probably so seductive to Hazel about these couples, when you think about it, is the idea of equality within a marriage or a partnership. Mm -hmm. Did she ever find that with anybody, even briefly? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, she didn't find anything that was that matched up to her ambition or what she'd hoped for. But at the same time, she knew she was thoroughly aware and in her biographies show that all of these people that she admired so much that she wrote about, they're all flawed. They were all flawed. And she draws that out in her books. When we're dipping into her journals, which is just fascinating. I'm so grateful that, that we can access some of that. You do see that she was full of self doubt. Mm. And yet at the mm. same time, doggedly determined mm. and also enjoying the thrill of the chase. So mm. can you just tell me about that sort of cocktail of emotions that was part of her personality? Yeah. Well, she was. She was very brave. Um, she, she would, I mean, even bouncing up and wanting to interview Simone de Beauvoir at the age of 19 or 20, that, that was beyond my imagination for bravery. She, she was the one that always, you know, stood up and made speeches and, um, how brave is it to pack your gear into a suitcase, two suitcases and leave the country, leave Australia and go to America and start all over again? You know, incredibly courageous and incredibly efficient. She was a very efficient person. Um, you know, she travelled here, there and everywhere and was super competent in that regard. But underneath it all, she needed a lot of um, accolades from her friends, and she had an enormous number of friends all around the world, people who would say that Hazel made me think I was her best friend. So those sorts of people, women, men, probably more women, but she needed the gratification back. So you mean she needed praise and she needed approval? She needed praise. She needed praise and approval, yeah. 
when it came to anything practical, like even changing a light bulb, she'd have to get a friend to help her. She couldn't do it. <laughs> so, but, you know, <laughs> can't, have, can't be good at everything, can you? Could she boil an egg? Could she cook? Oh, yeah, she was a good cook. She was a good cook. Mm, yep, yep. Her, her specialty was uh, tarte au citron. And probably her greatest passion was walking. She liked to walk in parks and, uh, you know, Riverside Park, Central Park, wherever she was. She'd stride off with friends, chatting and conversing and debating. And, um, and then she liked to go to cafes and, you know, debate things, debate the world, um, you know, have intellectual conversations. She wasn't a small talker. But she she was always pushing you intellectually, and that's what I found with me. I wasn't I wasn't up to her standard, but she'd be pushing me. You know, think about this, Della. Think about that, Della, and so on. I suppose you know, she, she had a super active intellectual mind, uh, but she was a shocking sleeper, and that probably her mind just kept going all night long. I suspect. <laughs> Where are Hazel's? papers such as they are not emails where are her actual physical papers and her manuscripts at the moment physically they're in my garage here at Coromandel East uh, but now that we've published life as art and we've taken the best of her papers where Lynn Buchanan and myself are, are going to put them in the National Library can you just say something about what it was like to edit this collection, what you were suddenly reminded of, what you were struck by that perhaps you hadn't thought about before? Um, actually, we had a lot of laughs because Hazel was very opinionated. And of course, you know, the first things you find are um, something that she's written about you or something that she's written about Lynn. You know, what a dull sister I've got and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so we had we had a lot of laughs. Um you know, Hazel, Hazel had a good, was a very insightful but sharp tongue, shall we say. Absolutely. I, I love the stuff where she points out that no one ever replies to your letter as a biographer. Because as a fledgling wannabe beginner in this process, in this profession, that just drives me bananas. Mm -hmm. The idea that you put all your credentials in and all your curiosity and all you know, justify yourself and introduce yourself in the best possible way mm. to someone absolutely crucial to your project. And then you're met with this kind of stony silence. Yes. And in her case, I love the anecdote about going to visit someone. That one's great. Who's agreed to see her and ringing the doorbell and the person speaks to her, but won't let her in. <laughs> and she's left with her bunch of flowers to take home and remind her of her... <laughs> <laughs> Lack of success. Yes, that's lovely. That's lovely. And and that's what you don't hear. I mean, when you see the glossy finished edition, you um, you imagine that it's all terribly easy. But that's what we thought we'd we'd put into this this book, Life as Art. Um, you know, some of the side trips, the the, the all the effort that came to naught, <laughs> and and some of the uh, obstacles. Now, you did a great thing out of a tragic thing, which is that you used her death to create a fellowship in her memory. I want to know 
how you arrived at that decision and how you decided what the Hazel Rowley Fellowship should be? <laughs> well, um, of course, her death was such a shock to everybody, to all her friends and her friends in France, her friends in Australia and her friends in America. And so everybody was saying, well, we've got to do something in her name, in memory of her. Um, then we thought, well, obviously it's got to be something around biography and um, it whittled down to two, two of Hazel's close friends and me, plus the peripheral support of a lot of people, who then d decided that really Hazel's trouble was always between projects. She, when she was on, when she decided, yes, I'm writing about Christina Stead, she was gung-ho and off she went and she knew what she was doing. And then when she finished, it was, what am I going to do next? And she did cast around. You know, at one stage she was going to do Sidney Poitier or she was going to do Germaine Greer, various people like that. So, you know, she went down a lot of false tracks. And so we thought, well, that's, that was Hazel's difficulty. Perhaps that's other people's difficulty. They need a bit of support at the time that they're just getting going. And so that's, that was the basis of our decision that we would start up the Hazel Rowley Literary Fellowship. And here is an extract from an ABC interview that Hazel did in 2008 talking about her idol, Simone de Beauvoir, and about the contract between de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre that she found so appealing. I would argue that her most dramatic existential choice, by which I mean really fundamental choice, was her relationship with Sartre. And you see, they met in the summer of 1929, and we've got to remember that this was a time when women didn't have the vote, women couldn't go to the most elite institutions. I mean, it was Sartre who went to the École Normale Supérieure. Simone de Beauvoir couldn't get into that. She went to the much more lowly Sorbonne to study philosophy. She did not have a dowry because her father had lost his money, but at that time, if you aspired to a good marriage to a bourgeois man, you better come with a dowry, however beautiful, however wealthy. And um, women didn't go into bars, they didn't drink alcohol in public, and above all, um, they must be virgins when they married. So here she was meeting this ugly little man. She described him to her sister as a very ugly man who was five foot one and who wasn't offering her marriage. He was saying something very radical. He was saying, I need my freedom. Well, lots of men have said that to lots of women, so what's interesting about that? What he said was, but I want you to have yours too, and I'll be there to support you, to encourage you, to, to we'll share our adventures, we'll tell each other everything. We might be apart for a year or two in some exotic place, having some passionate liaison, but we'll tell each other everything. Now to Hazel's friend and fellow biographer Drusilla Majeska, best known for her biography Stravinsky's Lunch and her memoirs Poppy and The Orchard. She and Hazel experienced similar frustration with the changing nature of academic life and had overlapping interests in Christina Stead and in the way feminism shaped their own lives. Drusilla was the obvious choice to write the introduction to Life as Art. They were in regular dialogue about what biography can and can't do and how far it can go in terms of its moral boundaries. 
She very, very much believed, as I believe, I agree with her on this, that biography is not muckraking. So that if you find out the affairs, the deceptions, (laughs) everything, that is not to sort of expose them as scandals and Yahoo, you know, not to really understand them rather than judging them in a way that is not prurient or um, stage, what's the word? You know, she would talk a lot like we're not tabloids. We have to be really careful not to enter that kind of territory. So, in other words, not to sensationalise something. Not to sensationalise them and not to have the kind of gotcha. You know, I think some biographers, um, I can think of some, that will find somebody has said this and then they've done that. And then they'll say, ha, I got you. You see, she was inconsistent. Now, I know, I know you you really don't like people who do this. And I think you wrote something fairly scathing, didn't you, once about Victoria Glendinning doing this? Oh, how did you pick that up? (laughs) Yes, she was who I was thinking of. Really irritated me. It was about Rebecca West. Because how many of us have done that? You know, you show me anyone who hasn't, unless they've lived the most boring life you can possibly imagine, who has not contradicted their own ideals, their own expectations. We do. It is human life. It is not possible to live, to risk, to step outside the boundaries, to push forward without sometimes doing that. Sartre and de Beauvoir did it a lot, as she shows in Tete a Tete. But the point she makes very much there and everywhere is that she says it's important to understand and not be judgmental and one of the things I think is very interesting in Hazel's trajectory as a I mean I'd like to come back to talking about Christina Stead because it's a more interesting a way of looking at this with that but uh, sticking with tete-a-tete one of the things that she realized after tete-a-tete and I remember her talking to this when the reaction of people in Paris Reaction in France is very different from reaction everywhere else. And people in Paris who were very divided about those who supported Beauvoir and those who supported Sartre. And she said that what she realised is that she had, and that one more than any other biography, had stepped back from making any authorial intervention. So she put the contradiction, she let it be seen because she thought her frame was sufficient to say this great ideal that we know in the nature of human beings cannot be fully met and and also works very differently for women and for men because of the way the grammars of gender work. Have a look at um, the second sex. She certainly look at there. And, And Hazel was saying that she thought that maybe she had moved too far in the direction of not putting any of her own authorial sort of voice into it. I mean, she's got her authorial voice in the sense that she's just a wonderful writer and she makes everything very vivid, but not actually authorial comment about what she made of it. Let's go back to Christina Stead, because there is a degree of kind of incredible hubris it seems to me, about a fledgling biographer choosing such a difficult person 
as their first subject. Uh, I'm wondering how you felt about that at the time. Did you think, well, she's bitten off more than she can chew here? No, I thought, go for it. I really thought it was it needed to be done. Absolutely, I did. And as she, you know, says somewhere in one of these essays, why start, why start easy? I know it was a very difficult decision and she stomped up and down and went for long walks and, you know, we went back to it again and again on that stuff. It was a big decision for her. No, but I was totally behind her. Why didn't you do it yourself, Drusilla? Well, I think one of the things that's so interesting when I think about Hazel and me is we were so similar in many, many ways, but we were opposites in one really significant way. Um, is that I had come from Europe, come or from London. Um, I couldn't get out of England fast enough. I mean, I had a very loving, lovely family, but the whole broader situation. I knew the kind of parochialness of of that that the centre could have. For me, coming here and to the Pacific was this extraordinary opening. Whereas for for uh, while. Um, Hazel was a traveller like me and she wanted to get out like me and she was always on the move. It was going in the opposite direction. She always needed to be at the centre, whereas I liked being at the periphery. And when I was... And the other thing that was different about me, I've never been terribly interested in writing a single life. I've always been interested in group lives of people of the same of the same era who take different paths. And when I first arrived in at the ANU, actually, before I was in Sydney as an undergraduate, having just come from PNG and just having left a marriage, I knew absolutely nothing about Australia, completely nothing. I I was doing history at ANU, and I read my way along the Australian fiction shelves in the ANU library, and what I connected to were the 20s. And I read all of those, of the 20s and 30s, that interwar period that both Hazel and I were drawn to, and I've got some theories on that too. Um, And I was interested in all the ones who stayed, and and I started to understand what this place was about through reading them. Whereas for, for... Hazel, having done her most of her schooling, she got here about nine, I think, most of her schooling here and her university here, was seriously not interested in Australian literature, didn't study any of it, chooses for her subjects, de Beauvoir and Violet Le Duc, has to go to Paris, is doing language. So when she comes back, the thing that interests her is the fact that Christina Stead gets on that boat in 1928 at the age of 25. What got that young woman on that boat? When all her friends were marrying, had already married. By 25, it was old not to be married in those days. Um, And were, as Christina said, were marrying these dreary boys just grown into long trousers and settling along the railway lines that were spreading out from Sydney in those suburbs. One of the more fashionable trends, I suppose, in biography in recent years has been what's called the quest biography. And the quest biography means that the narrator, the biographer, has an active role in the story and is a member of the cast. And some people, some purists like David Marr, are very anti the quest biography. 
but it also has a lot of fans. Do you think that the Quest style of biography was something that Hazel consciously and very deliberately resisted, wasn't sort of part of her nature and her approach? Do you think she she had a tussle with herself ever about that? I don't know that it was as sort of big then as it is, as it became. I do, however, think that it was a quest for her. She didn't write her own quest into it, but um, I don't think you have to be much of a psychologist or know an awful lot of Hazel's biography to know that those biographies that she wrote, especially Stead, Wright and Tete-a-Tete, were a journey. She says a biography is a journey and it's as much, it is a journey for the biographer. And she makes that quite clear. And in these essays, she makes that very clear. And there you get more of a sense of that. She doesn't so much in in the biography. So it's more a traditional biography in that form, except that a bit like David Barr, a bit like Hermione Lee, a bit like Richard Holmes, who are other major biographers of that era, she actually goes into that public-private, into the love affairs, into the psychology, far more than the biography of 50 years before that had done or even 30 years before that had done. So she was kind of up at that moment. And I think for her, each of those ones were things she had to pursue, most obviously in Christina's stead, the kind of leaving where you live. But Beauvoir and Sartre, it was about living in in both heart and mind and she says a very interesting thing she says that she thinks their pact was less about as lovers than as writers and the necessity for that intellectual companion the person to whom you can speak that truth one of her central questions about biography is we're all born in a particular moment and to a particular culture and a particular historical moment and what that allows and what that does not allow. And so we're on the scale of freedom from being free to being absolutely not free. How does that move up and down that scale? And one of the things I found when I read for doing the introduction to this, I went back and reread um, first three biographies. I didn't reread the Roosevelt, I'm ashamed to say, but I read the other three. Um, was when it comes to the war and the 50s and how incredibly conservative, repressive, that awful, awful kind of the McCarthy era, which stretched with the... I mean, the, if if what she's saying is right, which I, 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 I take it that it would be because she's re- researched it thoroughly, the tentacles of the CIA and the FBI chasing... Uh, following, tracing, tripping um, Richard Wright in Paris after the war and having some element to do with his death. We don't quite know exactly what. I mean, just sort of awful. And sometimes I wonder with the resurgence of the right, whether, you know, where we should be, we should be mindful of how fast the gains we make can be removed and how the authoritarianism can be both of the left and of the right because it's as well as the anti-communist, it was also the KGB and the communist stuff during the Cold War. She was a fiery person and as Della says, and as I remember from my 
two meetings with her. She was intense and she didn't do small talk. And you just dived into this kind of really meaty conversation with her straight away, which, of course, is fantastic. Did you ever argue in a way that was really, you know, serious on an intellectual point about any aspect of biography? I can't remember. We didn't argue in a confrontational or falling out way. And after those few years she was in Sydney, we never again lived in the same city. Though if we were ever in the same city, which we often were when she was back or we were at festivals or something, we always had long, long conversations, several over a bottle of wine in the evening or something. We'd have long conversations and we'd be right back into it. Um, And I do remember nutting stuff out, going into stuff quite deeply. So I think probably we did argue that we weren't sort of, we didn't see everything exactly the same. We took different approaches, we saw different things, but we were both very committed in a way. And both of us, and I feel like Hazel was a very good sounding board for me because I think both of us thought when you make a choice of what to write and who to write about, why are you doing that? What is the bridge between the past and the present? Why does that matter now? What is it that we need to still remember and learn and take forward in our own quest for the things that all her freedoms, the freedoms, that word that when you're young seems so easy. And as you get older, let alone if you live through the Second World War or the 50s, when freedom becomes altogether different. And freedom then, you know, to have the courage, it just changes. So there was a lot about that. Why now? Why write about this person now? Why does it matter? Does it matter? Should it matter? What was the frivolous side of Hazel? Was there a frivolous side of Hazel? Was there something about her that was that didn't kind of square with all of this sort of serious purpose? Oh, yes. There was a very naughty, frivolous side of, of Hazel, and I'm saying no more. <laughs> I'm really glad that Della and Lynn put life as art together as I worried that Hazel was in danger of being forgotten as a biographer of the highest calibre. She was thinking of writing a group biography of the Hollywood Ten as her next project, but also interested in coming home and finding an Australian subject, so the loss to scholarship and readers is huge. I wonder what Hazel would have made of some of the newer arguments around who gets to tell whose stories that are injecting fresh controversy into biography. Let's go back to Della. I, I think race. Race was the thing that um, really she felt she needed to understand. And she was introduced to Richard Wright and she just felt he had such a visceral way of telling the reader what it was like to be a poor black man in South America. And she realised when she got to America that race was the issue, you know. At first she thought that they'd got it together, but (laughs) then she realised when she got to Austin, Texas, that the black people live there and then across the highway live the white people and they don't meet, they don't mix. But as she said in her journal, she had a bit of angst about whether she had the right as a privileged white woman to write about Richard Wright. Yes. So she had to talk herself into that, didn't she? Oh, yes. As she says, as as you've read, um, she 
sat bolt upright in the middle of the night and thought, no, I can't do this. Uh, you know, this is too much hubris. Um, but then she thought, no, I've got the benefit of being an outsider. I'm an Australian, and so I can ask those innocent questions. And But, of course, I mean, could she do it today? That's a really good question. Could, could she get away with it now? She had a lot of advantages. Um, in the, she, she was a visiting fellow for the um, Dubois Institute in Harvard, and that, that was just a mix of black and white scholars, and, you know, they had these... They let everybody in. They felt that a mix was the best. Um, and uh, she had a... She, interestingly, her, her name could have been a black uh, person's name. Hazel is more of a black person's name than a white person's name, really. And when the book was published, they didn't put her picture on the back. They deliberately left her picture off. And the reviewers had no idea what colour she was because her name could have been black and there was no picture. And the reviewer from the Washington Post who reviewed uh, Richard Wright said, you know, you had me guessing all the way through where you came from and I eventually thought you might be Jamaican. He said, I just knew you weren't fully American by the, some of the expressions you used. Hazel would have enjoyed confusing that reviewer, as a recipient myself of a Hazel Rowley Fellowship, I also appreciate the huge contribution that Della and Hazel's friends have made in keeping her memory alive in a generous and meaningfully supportive way. Several of the biographers who've appeared on Life Sentences have been beneficiaries of the Fellowship. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is written and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, published and licensed by Lily Pilly IP.